0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to one more special episode of Eyes on Earth. We're a podcast that focuses on our ever-changing planet and on the people at Eros and across the globe who use remote sensing to monitor and study the health of Earth. I'm your host, John Holt. For our third and final show from the September launch of Landsat 9, we're going to hear from a legend. Virginia Norwood blazed a trail for women in remote sensing in the 1960s and 70s while working for Hughes Aircraft, a contractor for NASA. Norwood is known as the mother of Landsat for her design of the multispectral scanner, or MSS, which is the sensor used to image the Earth by early Landsat satellites. The first MSS collected data across four bands of the electromagnetic spectrum, but was considered experimental when it launched on board Landsat 1 in 1972. The primary sensor was a return beam Vidicon camera. Within weeks, problems with that system forced a switch to the MSS. Before long, it was clear that the MSS was the better choice. Norwood's sensor captured bands of light that are invisible to the naked eye, which made it possible to monitor things like crop health or wildfire scars with greater clarity. Norwood's approach set the stage for the next 50 years of Landsat sensor development. Norwood is 94 years old now, but she hasn't slowed down much. A few hours after attending the Landsat 9 launch, she sat down for a public Q&A with Dr. Kate Fickus, a Mendenhall Fellow at Eros and a co-founder of the outreach group Ladies of Landsat. She also took questions from other women in remote sensing at the event. You'll hear Kate, Virginia, and Virginia's daughter Naomi in this excerpt from their conversation. Be sure to listen through to the end to hear from another trailblazer in remote sensing. Kate's first question, by the way, was about Virginia's upbringing. We'll take it from there.
1: I'm an Army brat. I went to many grade schools, four or five high schools, and danced around, as it were. My father was an Army officer in the Signal Corps labs and had a technical background, and so I was always immersed in those things at home.
2: How did moving around affect you, do you think?
1: It uh, inured me to new situations. I certainly wasn't afraid of a new situation. So that was probably helpful.
2: So your dad had a technical background. Yes. What was, what was his field? Physics. And did you enjoy talking physics with Oh, him?
1: definitely. Yes. yes.
2: <laughs> so yeah. was he an inspiration for you to go on later into your career?
1: Oh, I would say so.
2: How about your mom? She
1: was sort of a late bloomer. She discovered in her 30s that she had a real aptitude for language. She learned German, then she learned Russian, Then she learned Spanish, and it was about then that she said to me, you know, each one gets easier. (laughs) And to me, that was absolutely impossible to believe because I'm a dullard in languages.
2: A lot of the ladies of Landsat that we've interviewed, and myself included, and I'm sure a lot of people here, had really influential mentors and teachers growing up. Did you have any through high school or university? Like Mr. Graf's aeronautics class?
1: Oh, yes. That was helpful. You're right. They invented that class during the war because they wanted to prepare young men to to go into the service. I learned vectors and all kinds of things that I might not have
2: learned that early. How about Dr. Rodman?
1: She was a very interesting person in that she had a doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania when that just was not done. Yeah.
2: Does she hold her own against male colleagues or other Oh, I would say so. Yeah. That's yeah. excellent. Yeah. So you went through high school, you had your aeronautics class, you decided MIT was the only place for you? Well, I thought it was the best. And
1: I still do, by the way, I mean, for that time
2: you didn't think about maybe like Caltech or other technical schools, it was always- Caltech didn't
1: take women. <laughs> MIT only took women because they were a land grant school. The law required it. I don't know any first line technical school that did except MIT.
2: Were there many other women there?
1: Oh no, there were 12 in my class and there must've been 500 to thousand men. We were in a real minority.
2: Did you have any mentors specifically at MIT that helped you along?
1: Various faculty members I uh, really appreciated, like Dr. Struick, Dirk Struick, and Raphael Salem. The the department was marvelous.
2: Oh, that's great.
1: I didn't get the feeling that they differentiated because one was a woman.
2: That's actually pretty revolutionary for that time, especially if MIT was the only one taking women if they treated you equally.
1: Yeah, I thought so.
2: Did having an MIT degree enable you to go further in your career path, you think?
1: I think it was very important. How so? I'm not going to say that that education was necessarily any better, Mm -hmm. but having a name school meant that people paid attention.
2: I learned that you received your degree in three years. You were done when you were 20. Did you start looking for a job right away? Right. I
1: did, and it was there being a woman was a severe disadvantage. They asked me what salary I would
2: require. Oh, that's the course.
1: And so I had decided to use a P1 for
2: a government Civil level. service. Uh-huh.
1: And it was $2,400 a year at that point.
2: <laughs> okay. And
1: uh, I mentioned this salary level, and the head of personnel said, No woman in our factory has ever made more than 1700 Did you keep pushing? Not with them.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> they were no, that was I was not them.
1: interested. Remington offered me a job. They called up and they said to my husband on the phone, your wife has convinced us that we should hire a physicist or a mathematician maybe he said, we think it's a great idea. We're gonna look for a man
2: so you created the position for them you exactly. told them what they need them and then they called your husband and said yeah. you didn't get the job we're hiring a man yes that must have been devastating damned
1: irritating <laughs>
2: <laughs> some people get mad some people get sad i can tell uh, okay. It probably made you more of a fighter did it did it discourage you probably at all?
1: i don't think so
2: where did you end up after remington after the remington well i
1: taught in the new haven junior college of commerce okay and as i recall worked for a pittance i uh then met an officer who had been an old friend of my father's at a cocktail party and he said well you ought to come to our labs the signal Corps engineering labs that were down in uh, belmar new jersey yeah i went down there and they offered me a job and i took it
2: that's great yes what were your roles there
1: I first started in weather radar. I knew nothing about it except that I knew what a radio sound was and that was about it. And my first task was to devise a radar target that could be tracked at a higher altitude than what they had. So I have a phoner reflector, which I have a patent on. They were able to track it to 100,000 feet. Oh, wow. And the meteorologists, they really wanted that upper air winds.
2: Must have been brand new technology at it that was. point, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. probably the beginning of modern meteorological satellites. Definitely,
1: yeah. yeah. And then of course Hughes later did the cloud mapper, but I didn't have much to do with that.
2: But we're all glued into we look at what our what the weather's going to be in our cell phones every morning. And <laughs> it's impressive that you were at the beginning of that that type of technology, and I imagine it was probably validating to be able to use your experience. Even though you said you didn't have you, you didn't have any in weather and weather radar yeah. radar satellite, but you Well I read forward. and
1: picked up stuff, of course.
2: Of course. It makes me happy that finally someone took you seriously and we were able to get some really cool remote sensing technology out of that.
1: Hughes was a great place to work. In those days they gave everybody his opportunity to decide what to pursue. And, you had autonomy
2: in what direction you might go. Exactly. At Hughes, did you feel discriminated against at all, or did you feel like you were regarded in the same way as your male colleagues? I
1: thought I was properly treated.
2: That's excellent.
1: I was the first woman who was a member of the technical staff.
2: That must have been exciting. Yes. (laughs) After Dr. Rodman, did you ever have another female mentor? Did you ever have any women above you?
1: No. There were so few.
2: So we can probably shift to what everybody had, at least four autographs here uh, for the, <laughs> the multispectral scanner. Did someone at Hughes assign you to work on MSS or? No, no,
1: I, I just heard people at Goddard were thinking about what you can do from space. They were so helpful in rounding up users and also the USGS.
2: Did you have free reign of your design? Did you have a budget that you had to stick to?
1: My company, when they heard there was interest, gave me $100,000 and said, make a model.
2: That's a pretty big chunk of change for back then.
1: It sure was. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we flew the first prototype.
2: Did you have an aha moment designing Mm -hmm. the MSS where you knew this was going to be revolutionary using this type of technology from space? I
1: was really surprised. I think I was as surprised as the users at how valuable the data turned out to be.
2: <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. You designed it first and then said, "Hey, this is this is pretty cool."
1: And people were so proud when they when <laughs> they had a new use.
2: Were there technical challenges that came up during design or implementation?
1: Calibration just hadn't been done. Yeah. And today, they have so many detectors to <laughs> contend with. I had 24.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you were involved with Landsat through Landsat 4. Were you able to transfer any of your technology or knowledge from multi scanner to the thematic mapper on the later Landsat?
1: I designed the thematic mapper first. OK. And we didn't have the weight allowance. We were only allocated a few pounds. OK. And so then, when the RVVs didn't give them the multispectral information they needed, they tossed them, <laughs> and we got a better allowance. I had no and idea. And then so we could put the big, the bigger one aboard.
2: Once you got those later, those later clearances. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. So the Matic Mapper came first. MSS just had to I be. Then I
1: downsized it.
2: Huh. Very interesting. It, it was really
1: just a shrinking. Yeah. And uh, fewer bands. Got they it. They only had the. Um, Three visible and the one near IR.
2: Did you always know that MSS was going to be something special? Or did you you just kind of close your eyes and hoped it would be? Well,
1: I'd worked on a lot of different satellites. And uh, no, I wouldn't have picked that one out as the winner, (laughs) which it's turned out to be, by the way. It, among among my other experiences, your other
2: technologies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that or the
1: other satellites. It's
2: the beginning of multispectral remote sensing in general. So I would say it's it's beyond a winner. I think everybody everybody here would applaud the concept of putting the MSS into space we just watched the launch of Landsat 9 back in 72. Could you have envisioned that we would be 50 years later still on the same Landsat mission looking at data continuity? I would not have. (laughs) Why do you think that is? Because
1: of the use and because of the users. You cannot exaggerate how important the users have been.
2: Did you ever doubt your career path or did you always know this is what you wanted to do?
1: I always knew that was it. It was all I was good at.
3: I highly doubt that. <laughs> Do you think
2: it was your dad that started that early bug in your ear about physics that pushed
1: you forward? Oh, I'm, I'm you sure he
2: did. Do you have any advice for the women that are currently involved in Ladies of Landsat or women in remote sensing, women in physics, women in computer science?
1: I would say just keep abreast of your field. Keep learning. Don't ever think you finished.
2: I don't have any other questions for you. You've been very gracious, but I think we do also have potentially some questions from the audience if you're open to it. Sure. anybody? I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> anybody want to offer a question for Virginia?
3: You yes. were the first woman, you said, in the program at Hughes. Did, did other women come along, or was it a big gap?
1: It's trickled very slowly. As I say, I was the first, and then years later, we had about five. I think it's just in the engineering fields alone, we're now something like 48% in the country. So it's been a very slow growth.
2: So what advice would you give little girls?
1: What advice did you give Reva? Oh, dear. That's my granddaughter. She claimed that I gave her all sorts of advice, which I forgot. (laughs) Learn
3: fractions making cookies. (laughs) She taught everybody fractions making cookies.
1: Well, I have discovered that people who say, oh, I hate math, I've never been able to do it, never learn fractions. It's probably, <laughs> it probably true. It has me pointed out as sort of a hobby horse.
3: <laughs>
2: Teaching people fractions? No,
1: that they should be. I That's what they should learn.
2: We can set up a booth for you over here. We can go over <laughs> some fractions later today.
0: <laughs> After the Q&A with Norwood, we caught up with another influential voice. Cass Green founded a company in the 1980s to map forests with Landsat. She advocated for and helped to write the Land Remote Sensing Policy Act of 1992, which moved the Landsat program back into the public domain after private management. She also co-founded and chaired the Department of Interior's Landsat Advisory Group. Here's what Cass had on her mind after hearing from Virginia Norwood on the afternoon of the launch. What makes Landsat 9 and the Landsat program so special and so necessary?
3: Uh, More than anything, the continuity. Uh, So, it's because all Landsats are really important, because we have this total view of the world over 50 years, that that continuity just creates so much science, but for policy it's critically important. For us to see what we've done to the earth, what humans have done to the earth, and then the natural disasters also.
0: Why couldn't we just use some of these new satellites that are flying all the time?
3: They are not calibrated the way Landsat is. And even if they were calibrated, we can't seed our intellectual assets all the time. The United States needs to have this.
0: You work to bring Landsat back into the public sphere, is that right? That's correct. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Well, you know, my husband and I had just started our company, using Landsat to create products for all kinds of different organizations and i got a call from somebody who said uh we need people to come to the hill and talk about landsat and how they're using landsat so i went back to washington dc and i testified our work our work was mapping spotted owl habitat for the forest service and then i i just got more and more involved and ended up writing a little teeny part of the bill um, but being very involved in bringing it back into the, the government sector. It's where it belongs. It never belonged in the private sector. I think we all realized that was a huge mistake. Every now and again it still comes up, you know, oh, this should be done by the private sector. It's like, no, no, this is a public good that we all need. And, and this
0: was in 1992, the Land Remote Sensing Policy yes, Act of 1992, yeah. and you had a company working with remote sensing in 1992. How many women were running companies? In the remote sensing. Well,
3: one, me. <laughs> <That's> one. <laughs> yes. So, what does
0: is, what is an event like this mean to you to see all of these women at a table oh, talking God, about it's the work? Oh,
3: wonderful. And to see Virginia, I mean, we never heard about her. My husband actually worked for Bob Caldwell, who was the scientist on Earth, on the very first one, and nobody ever knew who Virginia was, she was never mentioned, because they just didn't mention women, you know? So to see her, and then see all these young scientists up with her, and how inspiring she is, she's like a star in the sky, you know, you just want to follow her everywhere she goes.
0: What are the most exciting directions that the Landsat program will go and where will people take the Landsat program?
3: I don't think we know the most exciting application yet the one that has always been incredible to me has been the change detection but now that's old hat when we started doing change detection in in the early 90s you know people oh you can put two images together and look at them you know people hadn't even thought about it the most exciting application is is something that I don't have an imagination to capture
0: anything else that people need to know on this on this day the day of the launch of Landsat 9 anything on your mind you want to
3: uh yes yeah, they have to support Landsat next there's never been a time like now, where there's so many users of Landsat. But they need to be engaged. They need to work with their representatives to make sure that there is a Landsat next, and a next, and a next.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Eyes on Earth. Be sure to join us next time to learn more about satellites, remote sensing, land change, and much more. You can find all our shows on our website, That's usgs.gov slash Eros. That's U-S-G-S forward slash E-R-O-S. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. This podcast is a product of the U.S. Geological Survey, Department of Interior.